Amen. Good morning, Redemption Tempe. Well, I am blessed to be back with you this morning, preaching the Word of God. And before we take one more step, um, I'd like to go to the Lord in prayer. Would you pray with me, please? Father God, I ask that you bless your servant this morning, that you would be with me in that, that special way that you empower us to do the work of the ministry. Father, I pray that you would be with the hearers of this word this morning, that they would hear your voice. Father God, you say that your sheep will hear your voice. I pray now, Lord, that you would make that happen, that they would hear your voice, not mine, but yours. In any way that I have misstepped or misquoted, Lord, protect my mouth, protect your hearers. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified this morning, these things we ask and pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I am back. I am Will Gant, for those who uh, do not know me. Uh, my message this morning, the title would be uh, The Making of a Witness. The Making of a Witness. September 12th of 2021 and I had said this or explained this before, but I'm going to say it again because it's probably the last time that I'll get to tell this story. September 12, 2021, my son's varsity football team played the seventh team in the nation, the number one team in Nevada. It was televised on ESPN. And they were down by 17 points with a minute nine left. They came back, scored two touchdowns, an extra point, recovered two onside kicks, and kicked a 46-yard field goal to win the game. Amazing. Um, the same kid got both the onside kicks. So there's even, it's even more amazing than it even sounds, right? A minute nine. Um, it's up for an ESPY for fantastic finishes. Uh, it was just an amazing game. And I was there. And when I tell you that story, you get to say one of two things. One, I don't believe it, right? Uh, but most of you will say, I believe that. I mean, Will seems like a nice guy. He's preaching, so we should trust what he says. Um, wow, that's pretty, pretty cool. That's pretty amazing. You see, now there were other people there too, and, and each one of those people probably would have a different perspective on how they saw the finish of that game. But the result is still the same. They won the game. They overcame a 17-point deficit with a minute and nine seconds left. Today, this morning, we're going to talk about what it means to be a witness, right? And why God calls you to be a witness and the importance of the job or the responsibility of being a witness. You see... The resurrection, which is what we're going to be talking about this morning, it's, the, it's actually the final message in this section of the resurrection of Christ, his, his 
being arrested, his, his beating, going to court, the, the crucifixion, his resurrection, and then um, his ascension. His ascension will be next week, but this morning we're dealing with the resurrection. And, and to start off to let you know, it is an essential part of the gospel message. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8 explains that. It is a central doctrine in the Christian faith. The resurrection proves that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Acts 2, verse 32 through 36. In Romans 1 through 4, it says this, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that his atoning work on the cross has been completed and is effective. Now, this morning, I want you to hear what I'm saying. There are going to be three groups of people, and there are three groups of people here today. One group would say that uh, I'm not a Christian. Um, I'm kicking the tires. Uh, someone bought me here today. Uh, they promised me lunch, um, and, and that's why I came. And if that is you, first, make sure you get a really, really good lunch. Second, I would say, listen, find your place in some of the things that we're going to say here today. And the second group of people are, are those people who may have been around Christianity for a while. They, they do Christian things. They, they come to church. They, they give. Maybe they're struggling between, should I give on, on my net or should I give on my gross? You know, they, they, they think about these kinds of things. How, how often do I pray? Should I pray? What should I pray? They, they, they come to church. They may even participate in small group and serve to some capacity. But they would say, my life is just filled with Christian stuff. I really don't see power in my life. Those things that, that they talk about in the scriptures, that's not my experience. I'm just really busy. And the last group would be that group who would declare Jesus Christ as king they are in ministry, they disciple, they love people. They see Jesus as king, and they have established their life on that truth. All three of those groups are in my message today. And I hope and I pray that you would find yourself in this message. Amen? So in Romans 4, 24 and 25... 24 says this, but for ours also, it would be counted to us who believe in him who was raised from the dead, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. We, we always talk about Jesus dying for our sins, amen? But we very rarely hear people, unless it's from the pulpit, say, but he was raised for our justification, the resurrection has direct implications to our life and our faith. Amen? The empty cross and the empty tomb are God's receipts telling us that the debt has been paid. 
It's not just about the crucifixion. There have been many, many people who died horrible deaths, even more horrible than Jesus. There There are many people who have done miracles, allegedly, but no one has God raised from the dead except for Lazarus, but No one has been raised from the dead for our sins and our justification. Jesus Christ is not only the Savior, but he's also the sanctifier, Romans 6, 4 through 10. He's our intercessor, Romans 8, 34. And one day he shall return as judge, Acts 17, 30 and 31. When I was saved almost 30 years ago, I was saved in a Bible study. And the topic of the Bible study was the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I remember sitting in that Bible study, and and, uh, I didn't didn't say this in the other service because this is my favorite service, so I always save some special stuff just for you. But when, my, when I, I was engaged to my wife and I came out here to Arizona, my wife gave me two tasks. She got the easy thing. She had to plan the wedding, right, the easy stuff. And, and, and I had to find us a church and find us a place to live. That's all she said. I just, she's like, look, I don't want your plate too full. <laughs> just find us a church, find us a place to live. I was like, okay, no problem. So... Um, I'm getting ready to marry my wife, right? So I have, she's thinking I'm this really wonderful guy, and then I'm realizing that very soon she's going to find out that I'm not quite as wonderful as she thinks I am. Um, and so I was a little nervous still about getting married and all that. So I go to this little church around the corner for me, lovely little church. I got saved in the church. I love it. I love this church. I was serving in the church. I love the pastor. I love the people there, but I was not there for Jesus, I was there because my wife said, find us a church and find us a place to live. And I just checked off step one. I got us a church. And I was serving there because I wanted, when she came to visit, I wanted all the people to say, hi, Will, hi, Will, hi, Will, so she knows I was going. (laughs) Now, I know many of you have not achieved that level of manipulation yet, but, but that's where I was. And so in that Bible study, I wasn't looking for Jesus, but Jesus found me in that Bible study and changed my heart. And in a moment, I realized that I was this sinner who was manipulating my wife even through the church. Me sitting in that church was manipulation and sinful. And I realized that in that moment. And I realized who Jesus was and that he forgave me of my sin, even that sin, the sin that brought me in those doors. And he loved me. And I remember I would read my Bible throughout the years and I would read a page or two and I would go, ah, I don't get it. Let me shut it. You know, try it a while. I'd read my scriptures. I'm like, man, I I don't get this Bible stuff. When I got saved, in that moment, I heard a still voice in my heart say, open your Bible. 
And I opened my Bible and I could understand what it said. That was amazing to me. It just blew me away. It blew me away to the point to where I didn't put my Bible down for six months. I just couldn't get enough. And I was so amazed that I could go one day looking at these words and not getting it to reading it and understanding it and being convicted and even falling deeper in love with Jesus. And that was amazing to me. This relationship we have with Jesus starts and ends with Jesus. He is the author and finisher of our faith. We heard that this morning. But do we live that way? Is the question on the table. That was my introduction. Let's begin the sermon. We'll first start with a sermon that the Apostle Paul preached to philosophy lovers on Mars Hill in Athens about 20 years after the death of Jesus. It's found in Acts 17. This is what it says. The, time, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by, here it is, raising him from the dead. Acts 17, 30 through 31. Now, at that point in the sermon, his listeners cut him off and mocked him because of the claim that Jesus was raised from the dead. This is significant because it means the spread of Christianity in the early years did not happen in a gullible world that thought resurrections were normal. This was not a normal thing. They didn't just embrace this resurrection idea. But notice what Paul said. God calls the whole world to repent because we have all sinned against him. That is, we have not loved him above all things. We are de facto idolaters. We love self more than we love God. The repentance is urgent because God is going to judge the world in perfect righteousness. Did you hear what I said? That God is going to judge the world in perfect righteousness, and he's going to do it by a man, Jesus Christ. Jesus will be the judge of every human someday. Every human will stand before the living God, man, Jesus. None of our excuses will work in that court. We will be guilty unless we have trusted Christ as our Savior. Now, I want you to think of this. Every sin that has been committed since Adam till Christ returns has to be paid for. I'm going to repeat that. Every sin from the moment Adam sinned and Eve sinned to the moment that Christ comes back, will have to be paid for. And it's either going to be paid for by you in a place called hell, 
or it's going to be paid for or was paid for by Jesus on Calvary. There's only two options. So when Paul says God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead, what he meant was that the testimony of those who saw him will spread through the whole world and be a valid warrant for faith, a valid assurance that this really happened. Now, the resurrection is a historical truth. It really happened in time. Amen? It's not made up. There were witnesses to it, 4,000 witnesses. Believing in Jesus and the resurrection doesn't make him real. And not believing doesn't make him a fairy tale. It doesn't matter whether you believe in him or not. The reality is God is real. He's going to judge the world through a man, Jesus, And where will he find you? We are commanded to believe. Now, it seems incredible that the followers of Jesus didn't expect him to come out of the tomb alive. After all, he had told them many times that he would be raised from the dead. Early in his ministry, he said, destroy this temple. You remember, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up, John 2 and 19. After his resurrection, the disciples remember he had said this. He tells us that in John chapter 2, verse 22. Now, in our text this morning, we find this. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. End of quote. Now, I would encourage you, and in fact, I'm going to give you an assignment this morning, and we're going to check up on you. We have people to do that. I would encourage you to read all the accounts of the resurrection in the Gospels. And what you'll find is you're going to see different perspectives of the same account. Just like when I mentioned to you about the great football win, right? I gave you my perspective, but there might be people who give you a different perspective. Like at the end of the game, it was crazy and all the stuff that was going on, helmets were flying, and they would give you that perspective, possibly. The perspectives of the different gospel writers will help in your understanding and help in your belief of the resurrection. For example, in Matthew 28, one of the points that he makes is that um, there, were a, there was a Roman guard that was placed at the tomb. John doesn't mention that, but this is very helpful. There was a Roman guard placed at the tomb, and a Roman guard wasn't one guy. A Roman guard was a hundred soldiers. There were a hundred soldiers placed at the burial site 
to protect the tomb. And when the earthquake happened and the angel rolled back the stone, it says that they fell over like dead men. Now, this is the other thing that you need to remember, that the, the penalty for a prisoner to escape a Roman guard was death. They were going to be killed. So what they did is they ran to the leaders. They say, look, this is what happened. There's an earthquake, angels, light, and they gives them the whole story. And they said, okay, this is what we're going to do. They gave them large sums of money, and they said, this is what we want you to tell them. Tell the people that the body was stolen, that Jesus' disciples came and stole the body. And when the officers or your leaders come to bring down the, the, the penalty for what happened, we'll protect you. But we need you to spread this tale that they stole Jesus' body. And in the text, it says, and to this day, the Jews still believe that. It is great to understand the different perspectives, but it also helps with this. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was dark so that they might show their love for Christ in completing the burial preparation. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had been forced by circumstances to prepare his body hastily, and the women wanted to finish the task. That's why they were there early. They weren't there early because they thought that he rose from the dead. They weren't there early because they wanted to pay homage to him. They were there early because they had to complete the task because they loved Jesus. Verse 2, and they saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Now, Mary did not believe in the resurrection at this point. She assumed that the body had been moved. This is evidence of how slow the disciples, including the women, were to believe that Jesus had been raised from the dead. These were not easily excitable, gullible people. They didn't just say, oh, he got raised from the dead. Okay. They were like, they must have stolen the body. There could be no other reason why he's gone. Then the text says, then Peter and the other disciples, probably John, the writer of this book, ran to the tomb. John outran Peter and stood looking in. Verse 5 says, stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there. This is what Jesus' body had been wrapped in when they buried him, John 19, 40. Then Peter comes and goes right into the tomb, verse 6 through 7 Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in place by itself. Now, when I read the text, one of the things that I read, that I do, and this is just my thing, is is I have a pad and a pencil. And whenever I'm reading scripture and I see something that's interesting that raises a question, I'll write it down. So one of the things that I, saw, I noticed here was, why did John put in the text right here that Jesus' clothes were folded? That they were, it was neat. 
I shared with the first service. How many people here, you can just raise your hand real quick. How many people here have ever had their house robbed? Well, more than the first. All right. Now, I pray that none of you have to go through that. Okay? I remember when I was in college, my apartment was robbed. And the first thing that I noticed, and many of you who would, could probably witness to this, um, my house was, my apartment was torn to pieces. They go through everything. They destroy everything. They break and stuff. It's just chaos. It's a mess. Listen to what John says. Things were neatly placed. If they were going to steal Jesus' body first, I don't know why they would take his his clothes off, the, the, the death clothes. I don't know why they would take them off, but if they did take them off, they wouldn't have placed them and folded them neatly. Would have been chaotic. They would have been trying to get out of here. This is John's point. No one stole the body. Jesus was raised from the dead. John then entered the tomb and looked at the evidence. He saw, and the text says, he believed. Now, when John wrote this account, he used three different Greek words for seeing. In John 20, verse 5, the verb simply means to glance in, to look in. In John 20, verse 6, The word means to look carefully, to observe. The word saw in John 20 verse 8 means to perceive with intelligent comprehension. Their resurrection faith was now dawning. And we're going to deal with, I think, these three words because I think these three words represent the three groups of Folks that we have here this morning, these three words would express, I think, the three different kinds of people who are in Christendom this morning. To glance would be an unbeliever. To glance, my question would be for those who are glancing, why don't you believe? To observe. My question would be for the observers. Have you taken the truth claims of Jesus seriously? And the last, to comprehend, to perceive with intelligent comprehension. You can have intelligent comprehension, but my question would be, are you all in? Are you willing to die for the one who died for you? So let's get after it. Have you just glanced at the risen Christ? Glances would represent unbelievers. Why why don't you believe? If you don't believe in the resurrection, why not? What would you say if you're in this room, if you've been bought by someone that you know, someone that you love, if you were promised something, a meal or or a date or whatever, if you're here, why don't you believe in the resurrection? What's the reason? Why not? Have you taken the time to look at the evidence? It is 
of eternal importance, that you give it more than just a glance. Judgment is coming. Where will Christ find you? Will he find you in faith or will he find you in judgment? That's a reality. It is a reality. I, I, I used to say I, I, I love funer- to do funerals more than, than weddings, uh, but you know I've done some funerals of people that I truly, truly loved, and they were really hard, and, and so I don't say that anymore, but I do like this about funerals. Today, right now, in this moment, I know there's a guy over there to sleep, right? There are other people who check me out or checked out. I get that. I do. I've done this for a long time. I know that that's the reality. At a funeral, nobody's sleeping. Everybody is dialed in. You know why? This is why. You have a box with a body in it. And everybody knows that one day they're going to take their turn in the box. And they know that this, if they're going to hear about God any day, that day is the day they're going to listen. I've never had anybody sleep on me on a funeral. Never. They all get it. It's, a, it's the perfect illustration. Weddings are different. Weddings, you have two people. They're making all these promises. They have no idea what they're getting into. They love each other. She's beautiful. He's about as handsome as he's going to be. You know? It's, it's, it's totally different, you know? And, and, and so, but, but, but take what I say seriously. If, if there's no other message that, that I preach that you, that you listen, listen to this one. I would plead with you today, deeply look at Jesus in the resurrection. Because here's the thing. If you can disprove the resurrection Christianity falls apart. Falls apart. Paul says if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, we're a bunch of fools. We're to be pitied. So we might as well eat, drink, and be married because tomorrow we die. Observers, have you taken the truth claims of Jesus seriously. If you think that this doesn't matter to you, remember those who are in Christ, that is, who believe on him and belong to him and receive forgiveness and reconciliation from him, that they will be raised with him. And Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 21, that Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is what will happen when God judges the world by a man, Jesus Christ. He's going to change you. You're going to have a glorified body. You're going to live forever with him. You're going to worship him perfectly. You're going to understand perfectly. If you belong to him by faith in him, you receive a body like his. 
which will be suited to see him and enjoy him and enter finally into the new heavens and new earth where you will spend eternity admiring God and all that he has made. And this world that we love so much compared to that one will be like a candle compared to the sun. You observers, have you taken the truth claims of Jesus seriously? There's a song I love called the Revelation Song. I'm not going to sing it, but some of the lyrics include this. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Holy, holy is he. We sing a new song to him who sits on heaven's mercy seat. And clothed in rainbows of living color, flashes of lightning, rolls of thunder, blessing and honor, strength and glory and power be to you, the only wise king. And filled with wonder, awestruck wonder at the mention of your name. Jesus, your name is power. Breathe and living water. Such a marvelous mystery. Songs like that lift you up in worship. He does, Jesus is the most beautiful being. He's glorious. He's worthy of our praise. There should be a depth, a love, worship, and wonder that should drive our relationship with him. Now, I know I'm going to mess up some of you guys' vocabulary, but here you go. The word awesome should only be used for God. He's the only awesome being. I'm going to have a steak sandwich after this, and it may be good, but it's not awesome. Because the idea of something being awesome is that you're awestruck. If God is wonderful, we should, we should stare in wonder. If he's marvelous, then we should marvel at him. God is this unbelievable being who died and rose on our behalf to bring us to him, to put us in relationship with him. And he didn't just save you. He bought you into his family. There's a preacher that I, I follow, and he tells the story of his 26-year-old son being gunned down in a convenience store and killed. And they caught the, the young man who did it, who was also 26, killed his son. They caught him. He's in prison. He's doing life. This preacher goes and sees this young man every week. The young man asked him after two or three visits, he says, why are you coming in here to see me? I killed your son. He said, yes, you killed my son, but I lost a son, so now you have become my son. Forgiveness. That's what God does for us. He doesn't just say, you're saved. He said, you're saved. I'm going to bring you in eternity. 
I'm going to give you this eternal life that I can't even explain how wonderful it is being in my presence. I'm embracing you. I'm making you part of my family. I'm giving you this love that then is going to enable you not only to love me, but to love others. I'm going to pour my grace upon you so this life that you have is going to bring me glory. God does so much more for us than just say, you're saved. Is that what you think of when you think of Jesus? He's so much more than this guy in the Bible. He comes off of these pages and he loves you. To comprehend, to perceive with intelligent comprehension. Here's the issue. Do you see in verse 8 it says, Then the other disciples, John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and saw and believed. What did he see? What did he believe? Jesus wasn't there, just some clothes that left behind, that were left behind. Now compare this to Mary in verse 18. She has met Jesus in the garden, spoken to him. She returns to the disciples and says, I have seen the Lord. That's to comprehend, to perceive with intelligent comprehension. It is looking at Jesus, not glancing, but looking at Jesus and comprehending the reality of Jesus and coming to a conclusion. It's not just leaving the person of Jesus on the pages. It's coming to a conclusion that we build our life on. Jesus is everything. This is the type of faith that we talk about, this mountain-moving faith. This is the faith that martyrs have. This is the faith that God calls us to. I, I, and this doesn't really compare to what God does for us, but, but if my wife called me and she's in another state and she says, I'm going to be home today at 11 o'clock, pick me up at the airport, I'm going to be on the south side. Okay, I'll be there. Now, once I say I'm going to be there, everything that she does is going to be in reference to or because I said I'm going to be there. So if she has to go to the bathroom, she's going to be, let me hurry up and go to the bathroom because he's going to be here on the south side at 11. Let me hurry up and get my luggage. She's going to be checking her wife, her, her watch. Why? Because I said I would be there, and she believes I'm going to be there. Now, if she called me and she couldn't get in touch with me, no way. I didn't respond at all. When she gets off that plane, she might give me another call, but she's going to understand he's not going to come. I need to find another way home. She's going to start having behavior based on me not being there. She's going to have behavior based on me saying that I am going to be here. What is the behavior that you have that says that or comes out of your belief in Jesus? See, the behavior comes out of that. It's not we do this behavior because we are a part of a group, right? We are part of a community. What does this community do? There are things that we do as community. We come here, we listen to a guy preach. 
We, 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 we pray. We sing, right? We, we participate in marriage groups and small groups. There's things that this community does, but that isn't necessarily faith. It's activity. And if that activity does not flow out of your relationship, it can be just activity. And I think we as Christians, especially those who say they believe, the reason that they don't see the power of God working in their life is they're more activity-oriented than in love with Jesus. See, Paul does this, this dance between marriage and the church in Ephesians, right? And I think it's, it's, it's so good because in a marriage, you can be caught up in activity. I go to work. I come home from work. I make dinner, I eat dinner, talk a little bit to my wife, my wife talks a little bit to me, you know, we can go on vacation, we can, we can do things together. Those can still be activity that, that doesn't flow out of love. You see? I remember my wife used to always say to me when I was early, early on in marriage, she used to always say, do you love me? I'm like, yeah, babe, I love you. And I probably said it like that. That's why she kept asking me. And, and, and she, you know, do you love me? I'm like, yeah, babe, I love you. I love you. And as I got older, one of the things that I thought was this. The reason she kept asking me if, if I loved her was because I wasn't showing her that I loved her. I was just doing activity. Now, we don't have Mary's direct evidence. We weren't there. We didn't see Jesus in bodily form. We are more like John in the tomb. There is evidence, and either we see through it or we don't. The issue is, do you see? Have the eyes of your heart been opened? And if they have, you've become a witness. And the witness has become a window. This is what I mean. You weren't there, just like you weren't there for the football game that my son played in. You weren't there. But you can still say that I believe it, right? I believe it. And you can even tell other people, hey, I met this guy. He told me about this football game. It was unbelievable. And you run the facts down to him, and the person says, wow, that sounds pretty unbelievable. I'll go to the internet and look. And they go to the internet. They see it. They're like, wow, this is pretty cool. They go and tell someone else. Because what I said now becomes a window for other people to see what I saw. Your life. Your expression of the gospel is a window for people to see Jesus. And if you just tell them, if you're ex- I'm excited about that game still. Are you excited about Jesus? And I'm not putting myself on a pedestal because I, I'm, I'm a nut. But I remember my dad telling me, he's like, man, once we get you talking about Jesus, man, you are just off and running. You really love to talk about Jesus. And I didn't even know it. I, 
It's just like when you have a new baby and any opportunity, you know, you're whipping out pictures of the baby. It's on your phone now. You're whipping out pictures of your kid on the phone, right? When you're newlywed, you're talking to people about how wonderful your wife is, how wonderful your husband is. When you're in love, people know it. When you're in love, people can see it. People can feel it. They love each other, right? Do you love Jesus is the question on the table. Not do you know about him. You have to know about him in order to love him, right? Amen? You do. I'm not, I'm not saying information, the Bible is not. No, this is a special revelation. The person of Jesus only comes from the Bible. Have you looked into the scriptures to see who Jesus is, what he's done, and have you stayed in there and looked long enough and experienced what loving him is like because he loves you if you're part of this family? You believe my eyewitness account about that game. Can others believe your, eye, your eyewitness account about Jesus? Your witness is based on the witness of Scripture. And now you get to witness to others. I had a gentleman tell me once he was, uh, wasn't a believer, and I shared the gospel with him. He's a good friend. And he said to me, he said, Will, I've known a lot of Christians. You were the only one that's ever told me this. And he says, if you say that Jesus Christ is the only way, and without putting my trust and faith in him, if I don't do that, I spend an eternity in hell. How much does someone have to hate me not to tell me that truth? We're witnesses. That's what we do. We heard earlier, we are called his ambassadors. We say what the king tells us to say. And what does he tell us to say? The truth about the resurrection of Jesus. God has brought you here for this message and for this scripture and for this story of the resurrection of Jesus and this witness. My prayer for you as we close is that you will now or very soon by God's grace say, I see. I see. I'll close with this. There was once a rather eccentric evangelist named Alexander Wooten. He was approached by a flippant young man who asked, what must I do to be saved? It's too late, Wooten replied, and went about his work. The young man became alarmed. Do you mean that it's too late for me to be saved? He asked. Is there nothing I can do? Too late, Wooten said. It's already been done. The only thing you can do is believe. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, for loving us enough to bring us into your redemptive plan to where we have the honor and the privilege to share the good news of Jesus Christ. 
And I pray this morning, Lord, that we would be brought to that place where we question our relationship to the degree that we look at the depth of our love for you. Father God, I pray that you would do this for all of your people. And Lord, if there's anyone here who does not believe, I pray right now in this moment that you would change their heart, that you would move them from a place of spiritual death to spiritual life so that they could become true worshipers of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, as we come to the table this morning, this table is a celebration. It's intended to be a celebration of the person of Jesus Christ. We celebrate him. We celebrate his sacrifice. We celebrate his love. And if there's no other time that we give him thought and honor, it's in this moment. So as you come and take communion this morning, would you think on these things?